vacation time and then some time back here again. Uh, some Part of that time back here also free of some of the normal labors. So I really not only appreciated Larry's series through July, but I appreciated his willingness to do that, which enabled me to take a break. So thanks again to Larry. Hey, I want to start this morning talking about a song and its author. Amazing Grace is the song. John Newton is the author. Uh, Amazing Grace, probably the, the best known hymn in the English language. And because of its fame, John Newton, at least in part, John Newton's fame goes along with that. If you remember part of the lyrics to that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. If you've heard something about John Newton or know a little bit about him or you know he's the author of that song, if you think about him, it might be sort of uh, the epitome of the haloed uh, John Newton. John, John Newton, the famous pastor and preacher, John Newton who not only wrote the song but wrote almost 300 hymns, the only hymns back in the day. And if if that's all we think about when we think of John Newton, we're really not only missing the mark broadly, but we're missing the mark as he would see it too, and as he would want to be remembered as well. Newton wrote his own epitaph, still read it on his gravestone today in England. It goes this way, John Newton, clerk, uh, clergy, it means clergyman, John, John Newton, the clergyman, uh, once an infidel and libertine, once an unbeliever, and someone who lived life on his own terms, did whatever he wanted, whatever pleased him. A servant of slaves in Africa, he didn't serve slaves, of course, he trafficked in slaves, was, that was, was John Newton, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy, 1725 to 1807. Uh, Newton wanted people to be aware. You know, this is generations later, right? This is a couple hundred years and change since then. If you go by, you'll still see the same testimony today. John Newton wanted people to know, this is what I was, and this is what God did for me. Even with that epitaph, unless you know some of the details of Newton's life, you still might think he's sort of of a different kind of humanity than I am, or, or that somehow his transformation was special, or it was for him or him only, or people like him, but not for me. And if we, we thought of him that way, we would be missing the mark as well. Uh, there's, a, there's a biography, I checked this out from the local library called John Newton, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace, Jonathan Aitken is the author, and like many people, it's only when you read an, an honest biography, an honest uh, retelling of their life that you gain, gain some sense of what they were like before faith. Uh, I got saved at 19. I was uh, an immoral guy, a self-centered, selfish guy like him, following my own needs. I got saved and a few years later got married, and I remember I was... Uh, in one of my first jobs back in Topeka, I was just talking to a guy to share the gospel, talking to him about my testimony, and he had glasses, and, and he does this to me. He looks at me over his glasses, and he says, I find that hard to believe. All he knew was the cleaned up version of Mike, the transformed version of Mike. He didn't know me before. 
So he looks at this version and he says, I don't believe you came from that background. But that's the truth, right? That was not only my testimony, that was Newton's testimony. You read his story and this is what you come to conclude. John Newton was an irresponsible, self-indulgent user and abuser of others. And I don't just mean, by the way, in the slave trade. He not only was a participant in the slave trade from Africa to the Americas, but in smaller ways, he couldn't be counted on for almost anything. He was a morally small man who was given great opportunities in his youth, but who squandered those opportunities and treated others miserably. That was John Newton before Amazing Grace. And you read it and you're like, oh, that, I can relate to that. I, my life has looked like that. <clears throat> John Newton knew something of the depth and breadth of his own sin, something of the perverse nature that informed his thoughts and actions. John Newton really was, using the term from his song, John Newton really was a wretch. He was a wretch that God saved. Now let me ask you a question. Are you a wretch? Or, or at least in present tense, were you a wretch? Were you a wretch? There, there's some fine distinctions to be made in tenses, aren't there? Past tense, present tense, and future tense. And this morning we're going to focus on past tense. Uh, what were we before conversion? If we're not converted, if we don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior today, <clears throat> excuse me, what are we? What, what's true of us in our nature by birth? What does our testimony really look like? Ours is, and I say ours cumulatively, corporately, with no exceptions. Ours is a dark and an unholy past, just like John Newton's. The details may vary, but the fact of our complete lostness and wretchedness before a holy God is the same for every one of us. And that doesn't matter if you came to faith as a young child. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. Our lostness, our perversity, our moral deficiencies they're all the same by nature and by birth i'm starting a three-week series this morning a titled amazing grace starting with that theme from john newton's song but i'm convinced of this if we don't know and own and acknowledge the fullness of our own sin and guilt which i think newton did then it's impossible to have any real sense of the great grace of god in our salvation so hopefully all of us have this experience at times. I look back on who and what I was and I tremble at the thought that God wouldn't have saved me and left me what I was and then left me for His righteous judgment on that creature in the future. That it makes you awesomely terrified of God on one hand and clinging to Him because of His love and grace on the other. But if we don't know of what sort of stuff we were, we don't know with Newton we were truly wretches and wretched, then God's grace is diminished. Then we don't get it. If we don't know how great our fall was, we don't get how great His grace was in saving us and lifting us up. So we're going to look at this in three different lenses or ways. Past tense, we were. So please understand this morning... When we're talking about us corporately, we're talking about us in our lostness. In what we are by, by birth, by birth alone. Not by new birth, 
not necessarily what we are today, but some of us may still be there today, what we are by nature, what sort of creatures is God reaching down in grace to save? How great is His grace in our salvation? Week two, next week, all this Lord willing, of course. It'll be present tense. We are. What does the grace of God look like for you and I today? Not in our salvation past tense, but in, in His work of transformation and sanctification in our life. What does the grace of God look like for us today? So I think the backward look gives you this great sense of relief, thanksgiving, worship, humility. In the present tense, you're really trying to come to grips with, Lord, I, wanna, I want to be aware of and I want to enjoy all the benefits of your present grace that's here for my transformation. So God saves us and that just begins His work in us in making us more like Christ. What does that grace look like? And then last week three, future tense, we shall be. What does God's grace look like in our future transformation? Think of something like Romans 8, that in Christ we're not only saved and redeemed, we are, present tense, glorified with Him even now, but we haven't realized it. That's our future. What does God's grace look like in that? So going back right to the beginning, guys, I'm going to be going through a bunch of scriptures. If you try and follow along, that's fine. Your study sheet has all the references, I believe. So uh, hang on or look through those as we go through. Genesis 2, Genesis 1 and 2, back in the creation story, you'll remember, God concludes the creation of the cosmos and all the creatures and all the life forms. And you remember what He says about it all? He says it's very good. It, he looks at his, his finished work. He says it's all very good. And it's all very good until our first parents, until Adam and Eve fail to comply with the single prohibition in all the world, the single prohibition God had given them, don't eat from that tree. And they failed it. And guys, this is the thing. They went before God from very good to nothing good. That's Romans 7. They went from very good morally, in God's estimation, to nothing good in the fall. We don't see the full repercussions of that necessarily in Adam and Eve's life. <clears throat> Excuse me, but that's the New Testament, uh, that's Pauline theology about what is our humanity after our fall. God is holy and our fall rendered us unable to interact with Him in anything appro approaching a, an appropriate relationship. <clears throat> Genesis 3 records Adam and Eve's sin and fall and eviction from the Garden of Eden, the real and personal relationship they had enjoyed with God. And by the way, this is interesting. I don't know if Newton was thinking about this. The term wretch comes from a word that originally meant to be removed, to be forcibly evicted from a place. So the thought was, I have screwed up so badly that others have pushed me out of the place I was before. So we think of the term today, wretched as miserable, mean, small, morally, whatever. It has that today, but it comes from a word that means evicted. And what you see in Genesis 3 is the, the new moral wretches being evicted out of the Garden of Eden. God says, you may not be here with me anymore. It's inappropriate. Genesis 4 tells us that Adam and Eve's son murdered their son Abel 
because murder was now part of the human imagination. This wasn't true before the fall. Murder is now in the heart of Adam and Eve's descendants. Genesis 6 tells us not only the story, begins the story of the flood and Noah. Genesis 6, 5 says, Every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. Every intention of man's heart was evil continually. Now just pause for a moment. Is the humanity that was present before the fall, or excuse me, before the flood, is that any different from your humanity and mine? And it's not. It's not. In fact, I would argue we're worse than the Genesis 6-5 group because corruption tends to worsen over time. That's it's another theme and another lesson for another day. So we are of the same stuff. And when you get to Genesis 11 and God comes down and he confuses the languages, right? In fact, God says they're one people with one language. They'll do whatever they want. So God intentionally creates divisions among humanity on the earth. It's God who created nations, tribes, ethnic groups, various languages. And we say, why did he do that? Because he was slowing the progression of corporate evil. Because if man isn't all together with one will and one ability and one language, the corruption is slowed down. But what's happening in the world today? Computers, language, we are in, everything's international today. And so we are moving closer and closer to that period in time in which men raise their fists, Psalm 2 and Revelation, raise their fist against heaven and say, we will not have your rule. It, it's, it's compounding over time. The expression of that fallenness is getting worse over time corporately across the globe. The story of Noah's Ark that follows this flood narrative is the story of God's mercy in redemption. And why was Noah saved? Was Noah of different stuff than the rest of everyone else in his day? No, because Genesis 6-8 says Noah found what in God's eyes? Noah found grace. Noah found favor because God set his favor on Noah, not because he was of a different sort or class of humanity. It was God's grace that saved Noah. The ensuing history of humanity, if you've read anybody's history, it's the history of individuals and groups robbing, stealing, and murdering from each other. That's pretty much the history of the world. Because that's our fallenness being expressed. Though God works through the descendants of Abraham, go up to Genesis 12 and on, at the end of the day, what do we find about the Jews? Guys, they're as fickle and faithless and arguably worse than the Gentiles around them. Humanity went from very good to murderous and evil when our first parents chose death instead of life. And that wretched fallen version of humanity is what they passed on to their heirs right down to us today. And by the way, I'm not blaming future generations like they're somehow worse than us. We're of the same stuff, right? We're of the same stuff. So we don't need academic discussions when it comes to understanding the fallenness of our sinful selves if we have a grain of sand bit of objectivity about ourselves, we know it because we see it. We feel it. We see it in our own thoughts, words, and actions. There's a revealing comment on God's chosen people. And remember, this is a prophet of God speaking in the midst of God's covenant people. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Now that's a rhetorical question. You know what that means? It means no one understands the depth and the depravity of their own heart. So friends, we're not as bad as we think. We're worse. We're not as bad as we think. You don't know the depths of your own depravity. You can't figure it out consciously. It's worse than you think. Once our fallen Adam came, our humanity was wrecked and it made us mean, small, twisted versions of what God meant us to be. Philippians 2.15 describes lost humanity. It uses two terms, uh, crooked and twisted. Crooked and twisted. The term crooked comes from the Greek scolios. And you know what scoliosis is? Somebody has scoliosis, their spine isn't straight. So morally, here's the picture. Um, Think of uh, Da Vinci's uh, Vitruvian Man, you know, that guy, that image of man. So he's upright, he's anatomically correct, he stands upright, he's proportional, everything looks right. So that's sort of morally the picture we're supposed to have of our humanity. But Paul says, well, that humanity now in our fall, in our fallenness, it's got scoliosis. You and I can't stand straight up morally. We can't get there. We are moral midgets, and that's not an insult to midgets. We are morally small. We are bent down morally, and we can't stand straight up. When Peter preaches uh, Acts 2 verse 40 to Jews, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's God's covenant people. That's the Jews in Israel, and it's the same word. You guys are morally deformed. You want to stand up straight, maybe, but you can't even get there. The other term he uses is twisted, and that means something that has been turned around. So it was meant for one thing, and now it is, in fact, the the common synonym is perverse. It was meant for one thing, but now it's been perverted because it's been turned around to some other use. So when Paul talks about our unsaved humanity, he says we are morally deformed and deficient and we're not appropriate for the use God created us for. Paul takes the first two and a half chapters of Romans to show us that we all equally bear this fallenness. You remember he starts with the Gentiles, they're in darkness, but what about the Jews? Well, they're in darkness too. They have the light of God's revelation but they're morally deformed just like the Gentiles are as well. Genesis 3.10, or excuse me, Romans 3.10, it ends, it's a summary statement. So what's true of all humanity, Gentiles and Jews? Well, this is from Psalm 14, and you can count these with me. There's none righteous. Maybe there's an exception. No, Mike, there's not, not one. No one seeks God. All have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There are six all-inclusive terms that all say the same thing about our humanity. It's not good, and it doesn't seek God. It's incapable of seeking God. It doesn't, and it's incapable of it. Romans 7.18, Paul writes this, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Flesh is the Greek term sarks, and the thought is, It's my body, but it's also the animating influence in this body I have by birth. It's that nature I have from my parents and their parents all the way back. Paul's theology is 
there's nothing good in it. Now, if we say that, and I hope I'll qualify this so we're not misreading this. Well, let me read the next verse too, just so I can maybe speak to this at the same time. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. You and I by birth, guys, it's not only that we don't seek God, we are hostile to God. We're hostile to the thought of someone telling us what to do or how to do it. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Doesn't. When you read Romans, you realize when the law comes in and you say, well, I can keep those rules. No. Paul says clearly in Romans 7, when the law comes in, it stirs up our bent to rebellion. You tell me don't do that. You know what I'm determined to do? I'm going to go do what you told me not to. That's the implication of the work of the law to the fallen nature. We don't rise to it. Even if we say we rise to it, we don't. Um, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when we say, when Paul says, there's nothing good in us, and you and I can never please God, please qualify it this way. Can a fallen person do something that we call good? Absolutely. It happens every day, right, around the world. But before God's eyes, we are so morally polluted, so thoroughly deficient, that everything we do is tainted by sin. Everything. So that even at our highest and best, God looks at motive, action, inaction, and He still says this isn't good in any ultimate or absolute way. It's all deficient because the source is deficient. You can't get more than the source. Galatians 5.19 says, the works of the flesh are evident. So what does it look like? What does my fallenness in its expression look like? Well, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. The list goes on in Colossians 3, some similar, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And by the way, remember that Colossians was written to Christians to tell them don't live like this because they still have a bent to do these things. The Reformed tradition speaks of humanity as totally depraved. Totally depraved. That doesn't mean that all of us are as bad as we could be. But it means that we are all thoroughly so infected with sin so opposed to God by nature that everything we do is affected by that source and that motivation. That life that's hostile to God can't do anything that pleases God in any ultimate sense. Every act and action includes deficient motives. Every loving word and deed is tainted by a self-serving element, and every nod to loving God is contaminated by a godless desire. Uh, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read it, it's uh, one of our family favorites by Lewis. And uh, in it, it's uh, very briefly, uh, denizens of hell or purgatory, take your pick, they have a day trip to the outskirts of heaven. And really, Lewis uses this sort of to look at the kind of thoughts people have about their own morality. So there's a guy with a greasy lizard on his shoulder, his key sin is lust. What? What keeps him from wanting to love God and be with God? Well, he, he loves his lust more. That's one 
extreme. That's one example. But another example is this, is the mother. It's a lovely older woman and she's a mother. And she's, she's complaining to the guy that's taken her along and through these outskirts of the heavenly realms. She says, but I'm a very loving person. But really, he tries to help her to see, no, your love was idolatry and it was self-serving and it was smothering your son. You are not what you say you are. Your version of love was never love as God counted it. It was never loving. The religious are not inherently any better in nature than the irreligious. And in fact, if we said anything, Scripture paints the unsaved religious as the worst sinners on earth. Now, you know, Jesus ate bread with prostitutes and tax collectors, right? When he sat down with the Pharisees, he had to critique them. Any of the interactions you see with Jesus and the religious leaders in Judaism, he had to speak correction. And the worst things he says about humanity as a, as a class of people, Matthew 23, the seven woes are all against the religious leaders. It was religious Jews who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, John 1 says he came to his own, his own received him not. Is this wild or, or ironic? God the Son comes to his covenant people. <laughs> He's Yahweh in flesh. And they say, no, you're not. And we don't want you anyway. It's like, wow. Okay. That was the religious leadership. The Romans could crucify anybody they wanted, but they would never have crucified Jesus if the religious leaders hadn't said, crucify him. When the Apostle Paul calls himself the worst of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, you need to understand that he's a religious person looking back on his own religious background. And you remember in his religious zeal, what did he do? Pre-conversion, he persecuted Jesus by persecuting Jesus' followers, members of the early church. No one should console themselves that they're not as bad as someone else less tainted by sin or easier to forgive in their wretched lostness. Mark did a lesson not all that long ago out of Luke 18. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee thanks God he's not like that sinner over there, that tax collector. But the tax collector is hanging his head in this humble sense of shame, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says that man went home justified. The Pharisee did not. We want to be careful. Religion is obnoxious to God because it's man's proud attempt to elevate himself, but it's not through relationship with God. It's vanity and it's pride-exalted religion. I don't say faith. I say religion intentionally. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are so wretched that apart from God's amazing grace in Christ, every one of us would be rightly judged by our Creator as worthy of only eternal separation, quarantined. In a place of punishment forever, that would be justice. Pure justice, that would be it. That'd be true for you, be true for me, be true for everyone you know and every human that's drawn breath on the earth. If we fail to grasp the desperately wicked, fallen, deficient, self-serving, wretched nature of our own fallenness, we cannot begin to apprehend the depth and breadth of the grace of God in loving and saving sinners like us. If 
By nature, motive, word, deed, we are deficient through and through. That's the biblical record. But maybe we say, you know, maybe there's an exception. Maybe you're the exception. Maybe I'm the exception. Maybe there's that little spark of goodness that just needs to be fanned a little. You know, that little, little bit of you or me that it's really not that bad. It's kind of good. You know, maybe, maybe that would be fanned into flame and we would say, man, we're the exception to the rule. Or maybe not. You know, how, uh, not only how separated from God are we, how dead are we to be able to interact in any way that's vital with the living God? How dead are we? Citing an old movie, are we only mostly dead? Or are we really dead? Are we only mostly dead, Mad Max? Or are we really dead? Listen to this from Ephesians 2. Verses 1 through 3. So Paul, remember, he's writing to Christians. So these are Christians, but this is their history. This is their past. This is your past. This is my past. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead to God. Separated from the life of God. He says, in which you once walked, you were following the course of this world. You with every other lost person, you're just going along with the stream of death, which is existence on this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. And it didn't matter if these were Jews before that were religious Jews, they were still subjects of Satan's kingdom and that's who they were following. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When you see that phrase, sons or children of, in Scripture, it means that whatever the descriptive term with it is, that's what is characteristic of these people or that person. Sons of disobedience. That's what characterized you towards God. Disobedient. Among whom, and listen again to the all-inclusive language, among whom we all once lived. Who lived there? Who lived in the course of the world? Who lived in, in Satan's kingdom following him? We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, our fleshly carnal nature we have by birth. <clears throat> Among whom we all once lived in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature. We didn't work at this, guys. This is a given. We were by nature children of wrath. Not only were we sons of disobedience, disobedience is what was characteristic of us, we were children of wrath. Do you know what that means? Wrath is God's overflowing anger against sin. We deserved wrath. We deserved God's judgment. Like the rest of mankind. It's all-inclusive language, just like Romans 3. So how dead are we in our separation from God we're really, really dead. Ever since the fall, Adam's descendants die physically, Genesis 5, because we're dead spiritually. So like Lazarus, four days in the tomb, unless Jesus calls to us with words of life, we remain dead. We are spiritual zombies. We're physically alive, but we're not alive in the way that ultimately matters. The death that resulted from the fall continues today in every son and daughter of Adam and Eve. Though we live physically, we're conceived and born spiritually dead, Psalm 51, 5. 
alienated from relationship with God who is life. We exist, but we don't really live, Romans 5.12. Because Adam, because your natural life and mind goes all the way back to Adam who sinned and fell and passed on his fallen nature. In describing the depth of our fall and the totality of our lostness, deadness, wretchedness, and inability to please God, we are not saying individuals or humanity broadly are without value. So one does not mean the other. And here's, here's two thoughts along that line. Humanity as individuals and corporately, we have vast value before God today and we should have that same value for each other for at least two reasons. We bear the image of God. Lionel Lamb's statement of faith, of belief, says that no matter what lifestyle a person is in, no matter what sins they call their own, every person bears the image of God and is deserving of respect because they are valuable inherently as God's image bearers. That's still true today. But here's the thing. The finer the painting, the more easily it is marred. Or think of a flower. When a flower, have you noticed this, by the way, this summer? The flower buds, it gets its, the perfection of its beauty, and what does it do shortly thereafter? It just starts fading and falling apart. Its beauty is easily lost because it's so finely tailored in its beauty. <clears throat> Excuse me. The higher a perch the greater the fall. Uh, Oscar Wilde's uh, short story, The Picture of Dorian Gray, is a, is a great epitome of this to me. Dorian Gray in this short fictional work by Wilde, he's a very, very handsome, physically uh, good-looking guy. And, and he has this uh, favor that people are drawn to him. But there's a portrait of him, and Dorian Gray chooses to sin sin in any way he wants. And what happens is, on the outside, he continues to look like this very attractive man. But all the corruption is occurring to his portrait, which he keeps hidden in his attic. So that by the end of his life, the portrait is unrecognizable as Dorian Gray. His fall, not reflected in his physical humanity, rep represented in his portrait, that's what we're talking about. That we were created to be something very fine, the noblest of all God's creation. So that our fall, the, the depth, the distance of the fall is because the height at which we started. God's image bears. So that's one thing about our value. The other is, God has set our value again in redemption, hasn't He? Because God loved the world and what did He do? Well, He sent His Son. God the Son takes on our humanity to redeem us. You know, how costly was our redemption? God the Son. Not only incarnate, living a perfect life, but dying a gruesome death on a cross. And as Jesus, as sin bearer, being rejected by God the Father, buried, really buried in a tomb, and then before He rises gloriously from the grave. So, guys, we're not saying in our wretched lostness, we're not saying we're without value. God has prized us highly and we're called to respect and treat others with that same level of importance humanity matters to god we're not lowering the value of an individual or our race when we speak of the totality of our fallenness rather we're describing the awful effect of sin on the pinnacle of god's creation 
So how amazing must God's grace be to speak life to the dead? How amazing must God's grace be to make the dead live? John 5.21 says, Jesus speaking, As the Father raises the dead, Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus the Son gives life. Jesus calls to the dead and His voice and power gives new life. Think of uh, John 11, and this isn't quite the same, but it's a great picture of it, isn't it? Lazarus in John 11, he's dead. He's really dead. How do we know? Well, he's four days dead in the tomb. Excuse me, Lazarus' sisters warned Jesus, don't don't open that tomb because he's going to smell bad. His body is corrupting. So can Lazarus do anything to rise from the dead? He's dead. He can't do anything. You know, a soul and body are separated. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stands in front of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? The dead rise. Why? Because Jesus called him. Jesus called the dead man to life. And that's what has to happen for us as well. Ephesians 2, continuing in that passage, verses 4 through 10, and listen to this, and I'm going to break it up just slightly. So you're dead in trespass and sin. You're children of wrath. You deserve nothing but God's overflow of anger against sin. That's what you deserve. That's the background, the backdrop. But God, skip ahead, but God made us alive together with Christ. But God, God, but God, God made us alive. Did you make yourself alive? Nope. God made you alive. God made us alive. Why? This is the parenthetical phrase. Because He's rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, spiritually dead to Him. Listen to the rest of this and see if we don't get a theme. So God made us alive together with Christ. Why? Well, by grace you have been saved. By God's amazing grace you have been saved. You've been raised up with Him. You've been seated with Him, with Christ in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone boast. Our salvation is the fruit of God's grace exercised on our behalf. Nothing less than that. That's what Newton knew. We have nothing to boast of regarding our salvation. None of us were less lost than anyone else. None of us were less dead than anyone else. Dead is dead, and the dead don't act on their own behalf. Ezekiel 37, I'm using this, and this is not an apples-to-apples comparison, so I know that, but I'm using it anyway, because it's a great visual. In Ezekiel 37, God takes the prophet Ezekiel and he envisioned he's in this desert place and there's dry sun-bleached bones lying all, all across this desert valley floor. And so God says to Ezekiel, his man, he says, Zeke, can these dry bones live? Do you guys ever get a question when you, you just want to know what's the correct answer? Just tell me what is the correct answer. It's like, okay, where are we going with this, Lord? So Ezekiel does the prudent thing. He says, Lord, you know. I don't know. I don't know where you're going. You tell me. And this is what, and, and as they're seeing, it's a lovely a scene. 
And it's not about an individual, it's about the nation of Israel. Because Israel's cut off from God. In Ezekiel's day, Jerusalem falls, Judah's taken captive. Ezekiel's a captive in Babylon when he gets this vision. He's taken early. So he's talking about the nation. That's why I say it's not an apples-to-apples comparison. But as Ezekiel watches the bones that are scattered, they come back together to form skeletons. And then, then sinew and tendons get on them and then skin. And so what Ezekiel says is there were dry bones and now there are human bodies out in this valley. But then listen to what God says in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. See, God says to Israel, you're, you're cut off. You're in judgment today. And I warned you what I do. But he says, I'm going to breathe my breath into you nationally and you'll live again. And guys, that's what God does to us. God breathes into us the breath of new life. You know, it's right out of the creation story, isn't it? Adam, what is he? He's the stuff of the earth until what happens? Until God God blows into him the breath of life. That's what God does for us as well. If the Father doesn't raise, the dead don't rise. The Son doesn't call, the dead don't come to life. And if the Spirit of God doesn't blow and breathe, dry bones and dead people don't live again. Let me ask you it this way. How amazing must God's grace be to save those who don't seek Him and cannot please Him? That's Romans 3. Don't seek Him, can't please Him. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek. And to save the lost. Remember Jesus says elsewhere, I came to seek sinners. I've come to call sinners to life. Jesus is the good shepherd. It's a lovely, lovely image of of God's care for us that that you and I, think of, of, of Isaiah 52 and 53, you and I, just with the all humanity as sheep, we don't follow the shepherd, we run away. We all go to our own way, Isaiah says. That's the picture here. And what's Jesus the good shepherd do? Well, he comes and he seeks out the lost. He finds them. The sheep aren't seeking him, guys. They're running away. And he, the good shepherd, he's looking for them. And he's shaking the bushes. And he's finding them. And he's pulling them back to himself. If you read the biography of C.S. Lewis, uh, again, referencing him, you know, he grew up somewhat religious uh, as an Irish boy uh, in the north of uh, Ireland. But he goes to England, you know, he's schooled in his adolescence, in his early years. He's a committed atheist. Committed atheist, absolutely. But over the years, what happens is he has conversations, he reads things, and he realizes he's being painted into a corner philosophically, morally, logically, so that he finally comes to the conclusion and he acknowledges that there is a God. wasn't a Christian. He just acknowledges, no, there is a God. There has to be a God. But then as the years and the influences go on, and God used numerous people in his life to speak to this, then he realizes he's trapped in the corner further because now he knows. He knows something because God showed him. He knows that Jesus is God 
And Christ, the Christian faith is the faith. And he knows it. But how does he describe his conversion? These are his words. The most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. He was not nobly seeking God. He was running the other way. And he felt like God had trapped him. Because Jesus the shepherd went out and laid hold of him. There's a poem pretty well known. Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven which I love. So in, in Scripture, Jesus is the good shepherd, which is great, right? And this is a common theme. Uh, it's a motif throughout the Old and New Testament and actually through the ancient world. This is common imagery of a leader or Savior, the shepherd. But in the hound of heaven, the Savior God is a hound. A hound on the scent of this person. And the hound is relentless in chasing this person down. So it's a little different. It's not the good shepherd, sort of this more meeker version, you know, of being sought out. It's a hound on my trail, and I'm running as hard and fast away as I can, but I know he's right behind me. And I'll just let, read part of it. It starts this way. The author writes, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years, I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Goes on a little bit, but he says this, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betray me. The end, of course, is that person is, is run down, chased down by the hound of heaven until he is God's. Embraced and, and brought home as God's. God's captive, if you will. And glad to be so. Romans 3.10, we don't seek God Rather, the gracious, loving, merciful Father through the redemptive work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit seeks us out, chases us down, calls our name to bring about new life in spiritual new birth, all to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for nice people. And you're not nice and I'm not either. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for wretches. That was you and me, not just Newton. God's grace is based on His own perfection, not on our grace worthiness. All of us have been born with the spectacular privilege of being God's image bearers, but that image is so spectacularly ruined, so fully wretched, that apart from God's amazing grace, we are left unfit, undeserving, and undesiring in regard to the glory of God and the kingdom of heaven. To know anything like Newton of the grace of God in our redemption should render us humble, adoring worshipers of our gracious God and Savior. With, thank you. With that, uh, let's stand. Let's conclude by reading the, a portion of Ephesians 1, and then we'll worship, Lord willing, humbly and heartfelt. Uh, but read this with me from Ephesians 1, uh, a little peek into God's grace and love for us in Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his 